The problem is there's a misalignment with what a high percentage of Australians see as a primary asset or wealth building class, which is property. And so we, we took a, a decision to shift away and totally abandon financial planning and, and shift to more a property consultancy. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Sam Khalil, the Managing Director and Founding Member of the DPN Group of Companies. In delving into his experiences growing up and starting businesses, he shares all about the path he nearly took, why financial literacy is paramount and why haggling isn't always worth it in the end. With over 27 years in business under his belt and a team of over 70 people across Australia, Khalil has a wealth of knowledge in all things business. Between property development, financial planning and more, there isn't much he hasn't tried. However, everything he does is tied together and always aligned with his humanistic values. My usual day is at least 100 emails, a number of calls with you know, key team staff, you know, developing, you know, innovative projects within the group, um, you know, uh, innovating, enhancing what we do, connecting with my wife, which is really important. So, you know, I, I like to read, I read uh, spy novels. So, yeah, Tom Clancy, I like that style, <laughs> you know, fairly, fairly long books and stuff like that. So I haven't watched TV for years. So. Considering his family's history and education, it isn't a surprise that Khalil prefers books to TV. Yeah, look, so interesting background. I was born in Sudan, which is in north uh, eastern Africa, neighbours Egypt. I uh, wasn't there for long. My dad won a scholarship uh, out of seven nations in northern Africa to the London School of Economics. So when I was born, my grandmother took care of me for the first six months. My mum and dad went. He started at the London School of Economics. Then we followed and we lived there for three years while he got, got his doctorate there. Then he got a job with the Reserve Bank of Australia and we ended up in Australia. Um, and so I grew up, um, you know, we start off in Asheville, which is sort of uh, in the west of Sydney, and we moved to Bangor in the Sutherland Shire. So I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, uh, went to a boys' school called Janelli Boys High School. It's pretty rough. There's a bit of uh, <laughs> street smart you learn in, in, in certain uh, regards. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my upbringing, in, in, you know, and it was, it's, you know, Sydney cider since then and lived more in the eastern beaches after that. His father passed away when Khalil was just six years old, but he didn't lack for father figures. Pretty sad, but um, my mum got married again and, you know, stepdad, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he was fantastic, you know, as a dad and so, you know, I didn't see him as a stepdad in regard, but it wasn't like there was a, a connection with my dad and his economics. I don't know, it's probably more genetic than uh, social or, you know, nurture, uh, but yeah, so... And it's, yeah, it's probably more the pathway I went. So, you know, if we sort of talk about the type of work I started doing, I, I worked in freight forwarding after school, uh, then some uh, gym membership sales, office products. But, it was, but, yeah, it was more a friend of mine that, um, you know, said to me, hey, look, there's this new industry. It's exploding and growing. It was financial planning. And I got into financial planning before I got really into more property-focused uh, services or businesses or investment. That is very interesting because it sounds like you went down the path of what your dad 
you know, we're supposed to do. It was a bit different. Like he was working on actually at the time like computer systems for the Reserve Bank. It, it was early stages in helping create computer modelling for the Reserve. So, you know, he, he sat more at a level where you're creating policy and, um, you know, data at a national level, you know. So he was a professor in economics. So I didn't go down that pathway. As he's been in Australia for the vast majority of his life, He's definitely one to call Australia home. I guess if you, if many people can recall anything before the age of four, it's very, it's only patchy and just little pictures and that. So Australia is all I've known, and you know, uh, you can hear by my accent. There's no, there is no accent. <laughs> it's just well, it's Australian, so it's not like I have a uh, an accent that's uh, from the Middle East or Northern Africa. <laughs> and have you been back to to home country of Sudan? recently yeah look only once when i was nine so i don't really it's not a reference point for me so australia is really home for me i mean i, I speak arabic uh but it's broken um so you know family and friends would laugh at me when i speak and i struggle so i probably have the vocabulary of about a four or five year old in arabic so. with such a highly educated father you might expect khalil to have gone straight to university from high school however he had other plans started working I, went, I just wanted to work for a year so that's what went to uh shipping i got a job straight out of school and handling you know big vessels that came in and unloaded cargo and stuff like that so i worked for a freight forwarding company um and then interesting enough i went to theological seminary i thought i was going to be a minister and so i did that for a couple of years and worked part-time um and yeah so i thought i was going to go down that pathway but it didn't end up going in that way <laughs> If I go into, you know, like the impact of losing my father at a young age and stuff like that, I'm, you know, it's very shy. And I was really impacted by my local youth group and my church community, which had a really, you know, strong formation of my character, my confidence. And I mean, I struggled as a kid just even eating. I'd, I'd vomit at birthday parties. I was just so anxious, you know. But it was transformational for me to be part of my local church and youth group and that. And I got a lot of encouragement. And I guess... You know, for me, father figures in the church were sort of like the ministers and the youth leaders and what have you. So it had such a profound impact. I guess it's like a kid who's had a, maybe a, a tough home life and have a teacher that has an impact on them and they thought, I want to be a teacher, you know. And so for me, it was that sort of uh, impact uh, on me that I thought, you know, I really want to help people go down that pathway. But interestingly, I mean, even in church, they, you know, the minister get up and talk about the footy or something on the, you know, to warm up the crowd and stuff and, I actually, you know, when I'd read the paper, when you used to use, read physical papers, I would um, go to the sports section and throw it out. I didn't really care, but I'd be interested in the business section. And it, was just, it just seemed that was in my DNA. It's just what I would naturally go to. I was interested in businesses and business models and stories and stuff like that. So, yeah, I wasn't necessarily drawn to, to sport. And it's funny, like, I mean, I'd meet famous sports people. I'd have no idea who they are. And they'd walk to me because... I wouldn't be, you know, falling over them in any way. <laughs> but, you know, so I'd meet famous cricketers and they say that. I said, are you any good? It's a different pathway for me in, in, you know, starting there. But I guess what I was passionate about, uh, about end up, you know, pulling me over that way in the end, I end up back in business because it's, you know, I was sort of conflicted because I, I was, it was probably more my heart in a certain degree that, you know, that was affected growing up and saying, okay, I want to go down this pathway, but I kept getting drawn back to, you know, being involved in business and entrepreneurial. 
His friend from church who got him the membership sales role at the gym was also the catalyst for Khalil's next career move as well. He went into the financial planning industry and said, hey, you know, you got to come and check that. And I was always interested in finances and things and obviously, you know, hey, how to help people make money and that. So that's when I jumped into that field and, you know, studied and got a diploma in, in you know, financial planning and what have you. But it was always on the job training. So I, 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 for somehow, some people tell, say school was the best part of their life. I, I couldn't wait to get out of school. And so I was more intro, interested in practical application and training and, and doing stuff as, as we go through, which is very different because it was very hard for my mum because, you know, coming from a nation that was very poor, education, particularly um, tertiary or, you know, university support, and that my father was a professor was, she was, you know, wanted me really to go to uni. And, you know, there's the book smart and the street smart, and I took the street smart approach. And well, the main thing, again, is, is obviously that you keep learning and, and, you know, really become great at your craft, whatever that may be. And how long were you in the financial planning space for? Look, a number of years, and it's, it's really what took us into, you know, our business into property because we were uh, doing, you know, quite a broad spectrum of services, anything from managed funds, shares, insurances, and, and what have you. And then, you know, obviously an asset class for people was property. And um, just over time, you know, even dealing with uh, business development, uh, people from, you know, the funds and the funds management industry, you'd sit with them and there's just the volatility, the share market and everything. And it was just so much work and so much compliance. And you just found that, you know, I mean, I mean, look, you, you've got a podcast on this. Um, people lo just love property. And <laughs> it, it was their biggest asset. They made, they had most of the wealth, most of my wealth. And I thought, you know what, um, let's just focus more on property and, you know, uh, the vehicle that helps that is finance. So as a business, we made a conscious decision to get out of financial planning. We started getting heavily regulated and, and has continued to do so. And even the government you can see now is that regulated it so much. It's so expensive. And now people that can't afford it don't have access to it. So, you, you know, they've, they've made it safe, but now it's so safe that people who need advice can't access it. So platforms like yours now are, are taking over that role. You know, and, you know, people writing books and things like that are actually creating you know, financial literacy and education in that. And it's so people are more, you know, having to go down those channels because, you know, a four to $5,000 financial plan is a large chunk for a lot of people. And sometimes it's too narrow where a lot of the financial planning industry, you know, and they've tried to change that by making it a feed-based service versus a commission-based service. But property was never a showing on it. So... The problem is there's a misalignment with what a high percentage of Australians see as a primary asset or wealth building class, which is property. And so we, we took a, a decision to shift away and totally abandon financial planning and, and shift to more a property consultancy. Coming up after the break, he shares more about DPN. And then we said, look, did we want to more establish a, a, a brand and a business from there? And How his interest in helping people attracted the attention of one of the largest global companies. One of the businesses we launched was in the specialist disability accommodation. He explains how a time where he envied his friends worked out for the best. You know, I think there's a good definition of discipline. Discipline is putting off what you want now for what you want later. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham and you're listening to Property Investory. DPN has been in business since 1996 and was doing property for the majority of that time. 
However, it didn't pivot to property full time until 2008. And the brand it was, it was Direct Property Network, and then we shortened the name to DPN as a business, and have then just built you know a, a, an ecosystem of companies uh, as as we've you know uh, grown from just being a small financial planning business. I mean, I had, there's two business partners. We had our own uh, client base uh, pre 2010. And then we said, look, did we want to more establish a, a, a brand and a business from there? And, you know, I began to bring my passion for design and what have you and, you know, really infuse that into the business. And it changed then from just being, you know, some private practitioners with their own individual client base to creating a corporation and an enterprise. That's amazing. So, it sounds like you, you had a very short amount of time working, um, I guess, for someone and you went pretty much into your, in, into your business as a financial planner at a very young age. I was, I was 23 years old, started, I was, I was in office products, I had a company car, earning really good money and it was like, go start a business and leave all the security and work on, you know, mission-based income. And yeah, it was, it was pretty daunting at the time and, you know, so I left and saved up money to make sure I cash flowed myself. But um, you know, I was, I was working for under someone else at the time and didn't really like their ethics. Then I left and started a business at the time called Integrated Financial Solutions, which was the genesis of DPN. And um, yeah, that's the financial planning business. And we did that for a number of years and you know, got all the certifications and what have you. But as I said, we shifted down, you know, more property and finance and then have built some, you know, uh, enterprises within that. At the time, his parents were running a cafe. While it wasn't his mother's first choice for a career, she gave it her all and taught her son to do the same. My mum had a degree in sort of law and history and that, but being, you know, uh, new Australians and, you know, English a second language and stuff like, and what she'd studied wasn't relevant here. So, you know, as often they end up in service industries, but, you know, strong work ethic, um, you know, provided for us and what have you, but it's not like they had a massive impact on me in relation to, the field of work that I've chosen, apart from being very supportive and encouraging. With his work ethic from his family, he had to pick up the property bug somewhere. The influence really was more my, you know, one of my best friends. His name is Rod Stewart, not the singer, but that was his um, And then I guess my passion for property was some friends that my wife and I visited and, you know, they'd, um, you know, renovated a house and I was just fascinated with, you know, interior design and it sort of flicked a, a switch in me that's just, you know, become an obsession more than anything now. You know, I got really interested in design and architecture and all forms of design, whether it be graphic design, interior design, product design. And you can see, you know, one of our core values is phenomenal presentation. So from our website to our product development, we, we focus heavily on having design, you know, the creativity and the intentionality behind that. And I mean, if you see one of the businesses we launched was in the specialist disability accommodation. And um, that's where we entered into a sector that we'd never been involved in through one of our uh, colleagues and clients and we built a, a home for disabled Australians under the NDIS and we we just took our DNA of design infused it into that product and you know I, one of my great uh, examples or admirers, my admiration was for Apple as an organization and how it you know and my staff got sick of me talking about it but interestingly we ended up intersecting with Apple at the headquarters and they saw what we're doing. One of Apple's core values is accessibility, which aligns with DPNs. Once they're connected, they collaborated on a project. And then they brought three busloads of people. We opened the house in February 2020, with the Prime Minister Thomas Scott Morrison, 
Apple were blown away because we, we you know, set the global standard for, um, you know, some of the accessibility products using uh, Apple products. So the, the kitchen bench would elevate using Siri and it was secure as well. And to the point that I even had a, you know, a bit of a, a, a you know, a streaming service with some of Apple's key employees globally around it. So it was just interesting that these core values that we had and that I've emulated created that opportunity to intersect with an organization that I'd, I'd admired and annoyed my staff with. <laughs> but now they look and now Apple's, you know, involved in our project and, and helping us out in that. And it was, you know, really rewarding to see that, you know, our values that we've practiced and drummed into our team time and time again manifested into a product that set the standard um, um, you know, for, for disability accommodation and lifted it for everybody else. And it was, you know, always like I talked about, you know, it's like Apple when it entered into the phone market, it never built a mobile phone, but totally transformed it. And I guess it's part of our um, core purpose, which is to empower people to live the life they want. You know, and our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to empower millions of people to live the life they want. And it sounds quite audacious and, and that's what it's meant to be. Uh, but for a small company, you know, um, how do you do that? It's not always that you're directly, you know, servicing every single person, but through influence, if you lift standards and you impact your competitors and everybody else, that's how you can impact and empower people's lives. With the NDIS still in its infant stages, it's not quite as well-oiled of a machine as it will be in the future, but it's on its way there. It's tough. It's not as easy, and you know, I think everyone's working on it. But it's a great partnership between government, um, not-for-profit organisations, with a, which are the SIL providers, support independent living, and, and, and private, you know, development companies like our, our organisation, Casa Capace, DPN Casa Capace. But um, you know, as we open all these homes, each one, it's you know, the the impact on people's lives it brings tears to you. Like we we had, you know, one lady who who'd been living in a hospital for six months because she didn't have a place to stay, but. You know, she came in and she hadn't been showered properly for that time. She had tears because she could now, you know, the way the house was designed, she could have a shower. Um, and, you know, stuff like that, you just don't realise the the impact um, that you can have. But also just how great a nation Australia is. And, if, if you know, if you talk about, you know, um, how can this happen? It's just, you know, we can't take credit for that. It is just, you know, the, the value system our society has and I know there's some challenges with the NDIS, but fundamentally the ethos behind it is just that we place so much value on people and and the fact that we invest so much as a society. And if you look at, I mean, just even history and, you know, what under, you know, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, the, the way they treated disabled people, they, they began to, you know, they dehumanised people and they, they, they shunned them. So I think as a society, the fact that we're investing so much on people and lifting value, it has an impact uh, that's far greater than the financial impact, the dignity we put on people. And it's, you know, like I said, so, you know, I was born in Sudan, but Australia is, is an incredible nation. And, you know, we can complain about a lot of things, but frankly, from our healthcare system, the way we, we treat people, um, you know, you don't want to be in many other nations compared to Australia. When it comes to property, acquiring his first home was a process that many are familiar with. It was uh, as a townhouse that I bought off the plan. There was five townhouses in the project at Colonel uh, Street or Colonel Road in Cronulla. And it was $215,000. And, you know, we scraped everything. Uh, and it's just before we got married and we just put a deposit down. It was, um, 
20%. My parents gave me a few thousand dollars. We didn't want to pay mortgage insurance at the time. And so the loan was, you know, 156000 At the time, I thought, that's a mountain of debt. How am I ever going to pay that off? It was overwhelming the numbers, you know, $156,000. Now it's laughable. It's, you know, a lot of people earn. But at the time, it was just like, this is crazy. And it's interesting. I met um, uh, Sean and Katrina, who are, who are friends, but Sean's now a business partner in the business. But we were there and he was teaching at the time. And we just, we would talk about, oh, you know, imagine you bought five of these and held them for years. And, you know, this is not knowing that we'd, we'd end up being in this industry at some point, but we, postulated the idea of uh, with, with all this debt, might, might it be better to buy properties instead and rent them out and, 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 you know, spread your deposit and hold them over time, not knowing that that's what we're going to have as a business at some point. Is that what happened? It's still a property investment, but it was a home as well. But what, what I do know at the time is other friends were buying pretty flashy cars, taking out a, a car loan for four or five years. We we just saved everything put into the, to get into it. We had a crappy Daihatsu charade. We kept one car. We packed our lunches. We had no furniture. We had furniture probably pre-World War II given by family, you know, and it was all just let's get into the property market. And, and what, what was fantastic about it was in three years the, the appreciation on that was double what my friends had bought nice convertibles for and they were still, their cars are now halved in value and they were looking at starting to get into the market. And it was that you know, I think there's a good definition of discipline. Discipline is putting off what you want now for what you want later. And so we just had to go without, but I didn't regret it because the, the, the increase in equity was transformational, whereas those people started coming to see me and ask me for help and say, oh, you know, I've got this great car. And it's like, get your deposit, get into the market. Sorry, get rid of your car, <laughs> get straight into buying the house now. <laughs> Apart from the anomaly of COVID, generally cars don't appreciate. It's just a supply-demand thing, but, you know, it is an anomaly and I think at some point it's uh, – I mean, it's not like you're going to make anything that's going to transform your life. It's great. You know, I mean, there's been some amazing stories with collector's cars, but fundamentally we're talking – it's not, a, it's not a, a strategic game changer for anyone. As for developments – his worst moment is one he wasn't in control of and features in an unnamed but well-known cricketer turned developer. We'd started off with them, um, you know, raising funds from clients to invest in development projects that were large land subdivisions. And there's just, I guess, a level of trust involved. And they did well and then clients rolled in the next one. And then, but this person kept borrowing too much, highly leveraged and G GFC came and, 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 and it just collapsed. And, you know, it was a $2 million of client funds and that was terrible and um, I guess one of the key things we learned out of that um, you know and you learn it in lending it's you know character of the person and um, Lloyd my business partner said you know his grandfather you know, I wish we'd known this principle before you can never do a good deal with the wrong person and that was such a sage piece of wisdom which is in a, you know we've tried to really keep that at forefront what's the character it doesn't matter how good the deal is it doesn't matter how good the contract you have if the character's wrong, this deal's going to blow up at some point of time. It doesn't matter how much money or opportunity is in it. So and it doesn't mean they have to be an evil person because when we say the wrong person, it just means they might, it's either a character issue, uh, a capacity issue, or a competence. All right? And so you've got to look at those three things, you know? So, like, as we've looked at some other ventures, is someone's, you know, look at someone with great character. Their competence is good, but then look at their capacity. They're too stretched. They can't 
fulfilling it, you know, or it could be you know, character's an easy one. You know, not, you, know, if you can't trust them. It's, it's just going to blow up. doesn't matter how good the deal is. And the other one could be competence. They could have a lot of time. They could have a great character, but are they able to do it? So I think if you look at those three things, um, that they're really important when you're, you know, particularly in, in development or whatever you're going to do in business, you, you can't get away from that. So if you go into business, you've got to see it as a very intimate relationship. And if you have, you can't do a good deal, it doesn't matter how good the deal or the opportunity, if I give anything to your listeners as some, some wisdom, is it will never work out because who it is will impact, will always impact that venture. And don't delude yourself that you, you'll get away with it by striking a good deal or taking advantage or making it in your favor or whatever. Ultimately, deals, transactions, and businesses are all people anyway. Khalil recognizes that if you took people out of the equation, nothing would exist. And they influence it more than anything else. So even technology and that, people are going to be critical in, in, in having a positive, negative, or neutral impact. 2016, we bought a house at Wild Beach, right? uh, northern beach of Sydney, uh, Palm Beach, like pretty prestigious sort of area. It's a couple of million dollars and thought, you know, it's it a bit more of a, an emotional thing. But I thought it'd go up really well. And three years later, it had gone sideways. I, I could have just bought a, a normal investment property in uh, St. Mary's or Western Sydney and it would have better. Strange enough, again, with, with the advent of uh, COVID, the areas exploded because it was so far away. Like you said, where is it? Uh, but uh, because it's just so far away, northern parts of Sydney, it was just ge- geographically, it ended up being a second home place for people. People have that as a little bit of that holiday. But now, because people can work remotely far off, and lifestyle locations, like lifestyle has trumped accessibility. Another low point for him was following the GFC when properties were down. At that time, he was looking for a home to purchase and renovate. And, and sort of part of our story was at Paddington, and I, I was just driving the bargain too hard for twenty thousand more or less, you know, and, which was negligible. It was like one percent of the price, and the property doubled in two years. You know, uh, you know so it's more not, not, not. It was a bad decision in that I was being just too frugal, you know. And it's it's something that I, you know, I work with clients, people over time. They say. I can't, I can't afford it more than a million dollars. And it's just human psychology. I said, can you afford a million and $1,000 or, you know, not? and it's sometimes we, we undo ourselves with just nice and symmetrical numbers when it's, when we, we don't actually objectively look at the opportunity. So you can do yourself by, uh, do yourself in by, you know, making the wrong decisions, but you can also miss opportunities because of being emotionally bound to certain numbers. So that was an opportunity cost decision because I was just trying to get a nice round number that I like. Sam Khalil's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. We dive deeper into his passion for design, but what I do like about it is the craftsmanship, the design, and again, the whole that theme of design. Why there's a difference between excellence and perfection? Because you, you, you say, let's make this the standard, not accept what status quo is. He reveals the chance he took that went against what everybody told him. Not many developers would do this, you know, because it's too much of a headache. And that's next time on Property Investory.